Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we begin the study of the prophet Habakkuk. It's just a three-chapter little book, so we call him a minor prophet. It's due to the length of the book. Before we jump into the actual text, a bit of an overview. Habakkuk is usually believed to have been a contemporary to the prophet Jeremiah. As you read through his writings, it's going to become evident that he's writing this after the fall of Assyria and the death of King Josiah, which occurs in 609 BC, but before the fall of Jerusalem that happens in 587 BC. So that gives us a 22-year window in which this might have been written. I know the Lutheran Study Bible puts the year 605 on it. I'm not sure I'd get that specific, but um, it is a time of great evil. All the kings that reign on the throne of Judah during that era are evil men. Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah. You can read about them in 2 Kings chapter 23, 24, 25. Not good stuff. They're surrounded by enemies. The book is going to feel Job-like as we read through it. If you remember the suffering of Job and how he's asking these questions of God and eventually God responds. This is Habakkuk, the prophet, wrestling with God over the fact that evil is being permitted to exist and continue on. But Habakkuk, nonetheless, will end it all in the third chapter with a prayer of praise, a psalm of praise, a hymn of praise, thanking God for who he is and what he's done. So uh, the Lutheran Study Bible has a great little phrase about this book, that it is basically, it shows steadfast faith in the face of persistent evil. So let's read this first chapter. The Oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Yahweh, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth, perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breath of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press on proudly. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Yahweh, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Yahweh, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. 
He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? This is the word of the Lord. And so we can see the back and forth here between Habakkuk and God already. It's not very clearly indicated. Like, there's never a, the Lord said, at least not in this opening chapter. We do see it in chapter 2. But ESV rightly divides this one up. You can see uh, verses 2 through 4 are labeled Habakkuk's complaint. Verses 5 through 11 are labeled Yahweh's answer. And verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 1, are going to be labeled Habakkuk's second complaint. So this is a spot where uh, if we could change the chapter divisions, we might slide chapter 2's start back a verse and include the last verse of Habakkuk's complaint in chapter 1. But those chapter divisions have been in there for hundreds of years, so we don't usually mess with that kind of a thing. The oracle Habakkuk the prophet saw. So oracle Vision. This is a communication to Habakkuk from God. And again, it's a back and forth. Like Job wrestles with God, so does Habakkuk. The opening complaint is, is pretty simple. Why? Why is all this evil happening? God, why? Right? How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Crying out again and again. This is one a family can talk about. How often have you cried to the Lord for help without receiving the answer that you were looking for? Feeling like you weren't heard. Now the Bible promises you are heard. In our sinfulness and in our despair, it can be hard to always believe that. But it is God's word. It is faithful and true. How long... Can Habakkuk cry violence? So pointing out the wrongs being done to God's people and God not save them. Notice the expectation God will hear and that God will save. Right? Habakkuk is observing what's happening and announcing that what he sees doesn't fit with who God is. That he expects God to answer. He expects more to come that God does answer prayer, that God does save his people, that God does not tolerate evil and iniquity in this world. He's recognizing things are not good right now. But there is a trust. He's turning to God with this. He's turning to God with his prayer, with his plea and his cry for help. He's looking at the destruction and the violence that are everywhere around him. Again, uh, Assyria and King Josiah recently fallen. Assyria was the mightiest nation in the world for a time until Babylon overthrows them. They break them first before they destroy them. Assyria has like a remnant of an army that's left. They try to team up with with Egypt, thinking that they can defeat Babylon and take their power back. And so Egypt, their king, Pharaoh Necho, travels to the north, passing through the land of Israel on his way to join himself to Assyria so that they can take their stand. And what happens instead is that King Josiah of Judah, well, he doesn't want them to pass. 
For whatever reason, he takes the opportunity to seek to attack Egypt, and he goes after Pharaoh Necho at Megiddo. So he actually chases him down to the northwest, and he dies there. Nico warned him. Pharaoh Nico warned him. Nico even suggested it's God who has commanded him to go and do this thing and tells Josiah to have nothing to do with it, to leave him alone. And Josiah didn't. So 609, Josiah is killed. Within a few years, Assyria is destroyed and Egypt is conquered also by Babylon, although left kind of to their own over in the southwest there. So it's been a, a mess, a lot of military battles. The, the Battle of Carchemish, um, just a lot going on. The law is paralyzed, justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous. Justice goes forth, perverted. The law is paralyzed. The things that are right to be done aren't being done. Those who are righteous aren't acting. Justice doesn't go forth. It's perverted instead. This is the, like the judge who takes a bribe. You don't have true justice anymore. I mean, stuff's happening. Okay, sure, whatever. It, it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't matter if it's not true. If it's not good, it's not just. It's not really justice. The wicked surround the righteous. Things are not good. And God answers, and it's not the answer that you might think Habakkuk is looking for. Habakkuk's looking for salvation. What does God say? Judgment. That's God's response. Judgment is coming. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And so he's going to tell them. God is raising up the Babylonians to judge his own people who have abandoned him. This is the way the Lord works. The book of Daniel stresses this greatly. Romans 13 talks about this as well, that every governing authority comes from God. He sets up kings, he removes kings. He raises up nations, he tears them down. This is God's to do, and he does it. Judah has rejected him. They've left him. They've abandoned the promise. And so he's going to judge them. He's going to remove them from the promised land and give it to another. And he's going to use Babylon, even though they're wicked too. He's going to use Babylon to do it. And that's what this text is about. He's raising up the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are a subgroup in Babylon. Like right now, I live in the state of Missouri, uh, so you could call me a Missourian if you wanted to. I was born in Missouri as well, so it fits. I'm also, though, part of a larger group, right? I'm part of a country called America, and so you could also call me American. Those aren't really titles I use for myself. I would call myself a Christian first, but it's the same kind of a picture, a group, a, a tribe within a, a larger group of people. The Chaldeans are a subgroup of Babylon. In fact, King Nebuchadnezzar himself is a Chaldean. That's the group from which he comes. God himself labels them a bitter and hasty nation. Calls them dreaded and fearsome. 
the hasty part, they marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're just seeking to conquer and destroy whatever they can. They don't even care. Not only are the dwellings not their own, they don't even bother to keep them after they've destroyed them. Oftentimes. Their horses are swifter than leopards. That's a fearsome picture. You likely would not want to go to the zoo and accidentally fall into the leopard cage, pen, pit, enclosure, whatever it's called. Right? To imagine a leopard on the prowl? A dangerous thing. Their horses are worse. The horses of the Babylonians are worse. So it would be to see a Babylonian soldier riding against you on a horse. They are more fierce than the evening wolves. You wouldn't want to be left alone in the dark in the forest with a wolf either. They press proudly on. That pride thing is going to show up multiple times in this text. Pride is a sin. In fact, you could argue it might be the chief of sins because it is our pride that convinces us we need not God, we can be a God unto ourselves. It is our pride that really is the root of our rebellion against God, that we are better, that we know better. In the history of the church, there was something called the seven deadly sins. Pride was one of them, but more than that, it was considered chief of them. Pride leads me to think of myself and not others. So they are proud. Verse 8. We'll see it again in 10. Their horsemen come from afar. Indeed, Babylon is far away for Judah, far off to the east. But they fly like an eagle swift to devour. They will strike, and they will strike quickly. They come for violence, faces forward. If all their faces are pointed forward, that means they're all pointed in the same direction. They are of one mind for their task at hand. It will be accomplished. They gather captives like sand. And take that to a reference to numerous, right? The grains of the sand on the seashore. That then would actually be an interesting opposite, a contrast with the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 17. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. But as they're warned as time goes on, if they abandon God, and check out like Deuteronomy chapter 27, 28, that section, um, God will remove them from the promised land, and that's exactly what's about to happen. At kings they scoff. So back to Babylon, scoffing at, at other kings. At rulers they laugh. This is their pride. To think that other kings are below them, beneath them, don't have a chance against them. They laugh at every fortress. You can build as great a fortress as you want. It doesn't intimidate them. They just pile up the dirt and they overtake your wall. That's the picture there, right? They, it's not even like ladders to climb your walls. They're pushing dirt right up against your city wall. They're building themselves a ramp out of dirt, out of the earth, and they just go. And there's so many of them, they sweep on in and they go on. That picture of the wind sweeping by, right? It's a picture that we can recognize. If you're outside on a windy day, is there much of anything you can do about the wind? Can you stop it? Can you catch it? 
You can ask your kids that question, and you can't. It just blows right by. Now, if it's a more dangerous wind, like, say, a tornado, it not only blows right by, it leaves a train of devastation behind it everywhere it went. And so this picture is of also these Babylonians, these Chaldeans, guilty men whose own might is their God. That is, again, another pride statement. It is an idol. They look at their own strength, and that's all they, they care about. It is their God. A false God, nonetheless. So that's God's response. Habakkuk complains that things are not good, that evil surrounds him on every side, basically. And God's response is, yeah, it's going to get worse. God is going to send Babylon to destroy Judah, the once holy nation of God. So Habakkuk responds, verses 12 through 17, and acknowledges that God is God, and he he is everlasting, eternal. And then he says, we shall not die. He looks at the promise of God, and it gives him confidence that even if Babylon comes, even if Babylon destroys, he can yet say, we shall not die. He can attach himself to God, and he knows that because he is God's person, child, he'll live. may not be an earthly life. There seems to be a hint here to belief in a resurrection. Yahweh, you have ordained them as judgment. So he has heard God's statement, and he knows it to be true. He doesn't push back against it here. However, he does ask for, again, more. You, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So he sees, he acknowledges who God is, and also acknowledges more of God's character, just as he was doing at the open. You cannot look on wrong. He calls God to avenge his people. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the righteous? He calls for God to redeem. He calls for God to save. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them up with a hook. He, Babylon, verse 15, the enemy, drags them out with his net. So like a fisherman catching a whole bunch of fish, like they're nothing, like they're worthless, of no value. And yet, Babylon's destructive in that way. And they're prideful about it again. He gathers them in his dragnet. He sacrifices to his net. He makes offerings to his dragnet. Just like his might is his God back in verse 11. Habakkuk acknowledging here that these people care about nothing else. Their net brings them their power and wealth, so they sacrifice to it as though it is God. It might be a hard picture for us to fathom, but I invite you and your family to try and wrestle with it. Try to have a conversation around it, around this. What things of this world do we devote ourselves to? There are many. Sexual liberty is one that fits this very well, and it's been a thing in the United States for generations now, that we can have sex when we want, how we want, with who we want, and so forth. Obviously, you're not talking this way with your little children, but with teenagers, this is important stuff. This theme, because... We literally sacrifice our children 
to that sexual liberty. 63 million dead over a 50-year period of time. That's an idol that has been worshipped extremely. We can understand careers and how we've sacrificed even our families to our careers as we gave so much of our time and energy, not to our family, not to the thing God has called us to. God didn't call you to serve a company. He called you to serve your family. And we get so caught up in the idol of money and stuff and worry and concern that we offer the good things God has given us to someone who doesn't even care. You could come up with other examples, so think that one over a little bit. Give it some thought. Um, Thank God for his mercy and forgiveness to us that we don't deserve, but he gives anyway. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? The answer to that question is no. God allows Nebuchadnezzar to come through and strike down Assyria and Egypt and Judah and so forth, but later on God will also bring Babylon to destruction. The book of Daniel, even just the first five chapters, will give you all of this. He calls Nebuchadnezzar to repent, and there is actually an instance where Nebuchadnezzar does. But his grandson, Belshazzar, in chapter 5 of Daniel, very prideful again. And God destroys him. God puts an end to Belshazzar's reign. And in that very one night, Persia takes over the throne of Babylon. It really is, historically, it seems ridiculous that the greatest empire perhaps that the world has ever known is is going to fall in, in one night. A night that they were celebrating, that they were having a drinking party. And the only death to overthrow the kingdom is the death of Belshazzar. Nobody else dies. It's not a major battle that results in a whole bunch of bloodshed and then the conquering of the city. Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, well, we don't know this for certain, I don't think historically, but him or one of his men kills Belshazzar, and that's it. And Cyrus sits on the throne, and it's over. The kingdoms, kingdoms of men come and go. They topple, they fall, they do not last. Only one kingdom does, and that is the kingdom that Jesus Christ told Pilate is not of this world. It's a kingdom that endures forever, and maybe that's what Habakkuk was getting at in verse 12 when he acknowledged that God is from everlasting, and thus we shall not die, because we are part of that eternal kingdom that belongs to God alone.